Chapter One of On Secret Service Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents by William Nelson Taft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Roger Moline. Chapter One a flash in the night. We were sitting in the lobby of the Willard, Bill Quinn and I, watching the constant stream of politicians, pretty women, and petty office-seekers who drift constantly through the heart of Washington. Suddenly, under his breath, I heard Quinn mutter, Hello! And following his eyes, I saw a trim, dapper, almost effeminate-looking chap of about twenty-five, strolling through Peacock Alley, as if he didn't have a care in the world. "'What's the matter?' I inquired. "'Somebody who oughtn't to be here?' "'Not at all. He's got a perfect right to be anywhere he pleases, but I didn't know he was home. Last time I heard of him he was in Seattle, mixed up with those riots that old Hansen handled so well.' Bolshevist? Hardly, and Quinn smiled. Don't you know Jimmy Callahan? Well, it's scarcely the province of a Secret Service man to impress his face upon everyone. The secret wouldn't last long. No, Jimmy was working on the other end of the Seattle affair, trying to locate the men behind the move, and I understand he did it fairly well, too. But what else would you expect from the man who solved that submarine tangle in Norfolk? Quinn must have read the look of interest in my face, for he continued, almost without a pause, Did you ever hear the inside of that case? One of the most remarkable in the whole history of the Secret Service, and that's saying a good deal. I don't suppose it would do any harm to spill it, so let's move over there in a corner, and I'll relate a few details of a case where the second hand of a watch played a leading role. The whole thing started back in the spring of 1918, said Quinn, who held down a soft berth in the Treasury Department as a reward for a game leg obtained during a counterfeiting raid on Long Island. Along about then, if you remember, the Germans let loose a lot of boasting statements as to what they were going to do to American ships and American shipping. Transports were going to be sunk, commerce crippled and all that sort of thing. While not a word of it got into the papers, there were a bunch of people right here in Washington who took these threats seriously, for the Hun's most powerful weapon appeared to be in his submarines. And if a fleet of them once got going off the coast, we'd lose a lot of valuable men and time landing them. Then came the sinking of the Carolina and those other ships off the Jersey coast. Altogether, it looked like a warm summer. One afternoon, the chief sent for Callahan, who'd just come back from taking care of some job down on the border, and told him his troubles. "'Jimmy,' said the chief, Somebody on this side is giving those damn Huns a whole lot of information that they haven't any business getting. You know about those boats they've sunk already, of course. 
They're only small fry. What they're laying for is a transport, another Tuscania that they can stab in the dark and make their getaway. The point that's worrying us is that the U-boats must be getting their information from someone over here. The sinking of the Carolina proves that. No submarine, operating on general cruising orders, could possibly have known when that ship was due or what course she was going to take. Every precaution was taken at San Juan to keep her sailing a secret, but of course you can't hide every detail of that kind. She got out. Someone saw her, wired the information up the coast here, and the man we've got to nab tipped the U-boat off. Of course, we could go at it from Puerto Rico, but that would mean wasting a whole lot more time than we can afford. It's not so much a question of the other end of the cable as it is who transmitted the message to the submarine and how. It's your job to find out before they score a real hit. Callahan, knowing the way things are handled in the little suite on the west side of the Treasury Building, asked for the file containing the available information and found it very meager indeed. Details of the sinking of the Carolina were included, among them the fact that the U-37 had been waiting directly in the path of the steamer, though the latter was using a course entirely different from the one the New York and Puerto Rico SS Company's boats generally took. The evidence of a number of passengers was that the submarine didn't appear a bit surprised at the size of her prey, but went on about the whole affair in a business-like manner. The meat of the report was contained in the final paragraph, stating that one of the German officers had boasted that they would get a lot more ships in the same way, adding, Don't worry, we'll be notified when they are going to sail. Of course, Callahan reasoned, this might be simply a piece of Teutonic bravado, but there was more than an even chance that it was the truth, particularly when taken in conjunction with the sinking of the Texel and the Pinar del Rio, and the fact that the Carolina's course was so accurately known. But how in the name of heaven had they gotten their information? Callahan knew that the four principal ports of embarkation for troops, Boston, New York, Norfolk, and Charleston, were shrouded in a mantle of secrecy which it was almost impossible to penetrate. Some months before, when he had been working on the case which grew out of the disappearance of the plans of the battleship Pennsylvania, he had had occasion to make a number of guarded inquiries in naval circles in New York, and he recalled that it had been necessary not only to show his badge, but to submit to the most searching scrutiny before he was allowed to see the men he wished to reach. He therefore felt certain that no outsider could have dug up the specific information in the short space of time at their disposal. But, arguing that it had been obtained, the way in which it had been passed on to the U-boat also presented a puzzle. Was there a secret submarine base on the coast? Had some German, more daring than the rest, actually come ashore and penetrated into the very lines of the service? 
Had he laid a plan whereby he could repeat this operation as often as necessary? Or did the answer lie in a concealed wireless, operating upon information supplied through underground channels? These were only a few of the questions which raced through Callahan's mind. The submarine base he dismissed as impracticable. He knew that the Thor, the Unita, the Macedonia, and nine other vessels had, at the beginning of the war, cleared from American ports under false papers with the intention of supplying German warships with oil, coal, and food. He also knew that, of the million and a half dollars worth of supplies, less than one-sixth had ever been transshipped. Therefore, having failed so signally here, the Germans would hardly try the same scheme again. The rumor that German officers had actually come into New York, where they were supposed to have been seen in a theater, was also rather far-fetched. So the wireless theory seemed to be the most tenable. But even a wireless cannot conceal its existence from the other stations indefinitely. Of course, it was possible that it might be located on some unfrequented part of the coast. But then, how could the operator obtain the information which he transmitted to the U-boat? Callahan gave it up in despair, for that night. He was tired, and he felt that eight hours' sleep would do him more good than thrashing around with a problem for which there appeared to be no solution, a problem which, after all, he couldn't even be sure existed. Maybe, he thought drowsily, as he turned off the lights, maybe the German on the U-boat was only boasting, after all, or maybe... The first thing Jimmy did the next morning was to call upon the head of the recently organized Intelligence Bureau of the War Department, not the Intelligence Division, which has charge of censorship and the handling of news, but the Bureau which bears the same relation to the Army that the Secret Service does to the Treasury Department. "'From what ports are transports sailing within the next couple of weeks?' he inquired of the officer in charge. "'From Boston, New York, Norfolk, and Charleston,' was the reply, merely confirming Callahan's previous belief. He had hoped that the ground would be more limited, because he wanted to have the honor of solving this problem by himself, and it was hardly possible for him to cover the entire Atlantic coast. "'Where's the biggest ship sailing from?' was his next question. "'There's one that clears Norfolk at daylight on Monday morning with twelve thousand men aboard.' "'Norfolk?' interrupted Callahan. "'I thought most of the big ones left from New York or Boston.' "'So they do, generally.' but these men are from Virginia and North Carolina. Therefore, it's easier to ship them out of Norfolk. Saves time and congestion of the railroads. As it happens, the ship they're going on is one of the largest that will clear for ten days or more. All of the other big ones are on the other side. Then, cut in Callahan, if the Germans wanted to make a ten-strike, they'd lay for that boat? They sure would. 
and one torpedo well placed would make the Tuscania look like a Sunday school picnic. But what's the idea? Got a tip that the Huns are going to try to grab her? No, not a tip, Callahan called back over his shoulder, for he was already halfway out of the door. Just a hunch, and I'm going to play it for all it's worth. The next morning, safely ensconced at the Monticello, under the name of Robert P. Oliver of Williamsport, Pennsylvania, Callahan admitted to himself that he was indeed working on nothing more than a hunch, and not a very well-defined one at that. The only point that appeared actually to back up his theory that the information was coming from Norfolk was the fact that the U-boat was known to be operating between New York and the Virginia Capes. New York itself was well guarded, and the surrounding country was continually patrolled by operatives of all kinds. It was the logical point to watch, and therefore it would be much more difficult to obtain and transmit information there than it would be in the vicinity of Norfolk, where military and naval operations were not conducted on as large a scale, nor with as great an amount of secrecy. Norfolk, Callahan found, was rather proud of her new-found glory. For years she had basked in the social prestige of the Chamberlain, the annual gathering of the fleet at Hampton Roads, and the military pomp and ceremony attended upon the operations of Fortress Monroe. But the war had brought a new thrill. Norfolk was now one of the principal ports of embarkation for the men going abroad. Norfolk had finally taken her rank with New York and Boston, the rank to which her harbor entitled her. Callahan reached Norfolk on Wednesday morning. The America, according to the information he had received from the War Department, would clear at daybreak Monday. But at noon on Saturday, the Secret Service operative had very little more knowledge than when he arrived. He had found that there was a rumor to the effect that two U-boats were waiting off the capes for the transport, which, of course, would have the benefit of the usual convoy. But, as one army officer phrased it, what's the use of a convoy if they know just where you are? Germany would willingly lose a sub or two to get us, and with the sea that's been running for the past ten days, there'd be no hope of saving more than half the boys. Spurred by the rapidity with which time was passing, and the fact that he sensed a thrill of danger, an intuition of impending peril around the America, Callahan spent the better part of Friday night and all Saturday morning running down tips that proved to be groundless. A man with a German name was reported to be working in secret upon some invention in an isolated house on Willoughby Spit. A woman, concerning whom little was known, had been seen frequently in the company of two lieutenants slated to sail on the America. A house in Newport News emitted strange clacking sounds at night. But the alleged German proved to be a photographer of unassailable loyalty, 
putting in extra hours trying to develop a new process of color printing. The woman came from one of the oldest families in Richmond and had known the two lieutenants for years. The house in Newport News proved to be the residence of a young man who hoped some day to sell a photoplay scenario, the irregular clacking noise being made by a typewriter operated none too steadily. "'That's what happens to most of the clues that people hand you,' Callahan mused, as he sat before his open window on Saturday evening, with less than thirty-six hours left before the America was scheduled to leave. "'Some fellows have luck with them, but I'll be hanged if I ever did. Here I'm working in the dark on a case that I'm not even positive exists.' That infernal submarine may be laying off Boston at this minute, waiting for the ship that leaves there Tuesday. Maybe they don't get any word from shore at all. Maybe they just... But here he was brought up with a sudden jar that concentrated all his mental faculties along an entirely different road. Gazing out over the lights of the city, scarcely aware that he saw them, his subconscious mind had been following for the past three minutes something apparently usual, but in reality entirely out of the ordinary. "'By George!' he muttered. "'I wonder!' Then, taking his watch from his pocket, his eyes alternated between a point several blocks distant, a point over the roofs of the houses, and the second hand of his timepiece. Less than a minute elapsed before he reached for a pencil and commenced to jot down dots and dashes on the back of an envelope. When, a quarter of an hour later, he found that the dashes had become monotonous, as he expected they would, he reached for the telephone and asked to be connected with the private wire of the Navy Department in Washington. "'Let me speak to Mr. Thurber at once,' he directed. Operative Callahan, S.S. speaking. Hello, that you, Thurber? This is Callahan. I'm in Norfolk, and I want to know whether you can read this code. You can figure it out if anybody can. Ready? Dash, 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 dot, dash, dash, dot and he continued until he had repeated the entire series of symbols that he had plucked out of the night. "'Sounds like a variation of the International Morse,' came the comment from the other end of the wire, from Thurber, librarian of the Navy Department, and one of the leading American authorities on code and ciphers. "'May take a little time to figure it out, but it doesn't look difficult. Where can I reach you?' I'm at the Monticello, name of Robert P. Oliver. Put in a call for me as soon as you see the light on it. I've got something important to do right now. And he hung up without another word. A quick grab for his hat, a pat under his arm, to make sure that the holster holding his automatic was in place, and Callahan was on his way downstairs. Once in the street, he quickened his pace and was soon gazing skyward at the corner of two deserted thoroughfares 
not many blocks from the Monticello. A few minutes' consultation with his watch confirmed his impression that everything was right again, and he commenced his search for the night watchman. Who, he inquired of that individual, has charge of the operation of that phonograph sign on the roof? Don't know for certain, sir, but I think it's operated by a man down the street a piece. He's got charge of a bunch of them sort of things. Mighty funny kind of way to earn a living. I call it flashing on and off all night long. But where's he work from? interrupted Callahan, fearful that the Negro's garrulousness might delay him unduly. Straight down this street three blocks, sir. Then turn one block to your left, and you can't miss the place. Electrical advertising headquarters, they calls it. Thank you, sir. And Callahan was gone almost before the watchman could grasp the fact that he held a five-dollar bill instead of a dollar, as he thought. It didn't take the Secret Service man long to locate the place he sought, and on the top floor he found a dark, swarthy individual bending over the complicated apparatus which operated a number of the electric signs throughout the city. Before the other knew it, Callahan was in the room, his back to the door and his automatic ready for action. "'Up with your hands,' snapped Callahan. "'Higher. That's better. Now tell me where you got that information you flashed out to see tonight by means of that phonograph sign up the street. Quick, I haven't any time to waste.' "'See, si, see, si, senor.' stammered the man who faced him. But I understand not the English very well. All right, countered Callahan. Let's try it in Spanish, and he repeated his demands in that language. Volubly, the Spaniard, or Mexican as he later turned out to be, maintained that he had received no information, nor had he transmitted any. He claimed his only duty was to watch the drums which operated the signs mechanically. "'No drum in the world could make that sign flash like it did tonight,' Callahan cut in. "'For more than fifteen minutes you sent a variation of the Morse code seaward. Come on, I'll give you just one minute to tell me, or I'll bend this gun over your head.' Before the minute had elapsed, the Mexican commenced his confession. He had been paid a hundred dollars for a week, he claimed, to flash a certain series of signals every Saturday night, precisely at nine o'clock. The message itself, a series of dots and dashes, which he produced from his pocket as evidence of his truthfulness, had reached him on Saturday morning for the two preceding weeks. He didn't know what it meant. All he did was to disconnect the drum which operated the sign and move the switch himself. Payment for each week's work, he stated, was enclosed with the next week's message. Where it came from, he didn't know, but the envelope was postmarked Washington. With his revolver concealed in his coat pocket, but with its muzzle in the small of the Mexican's back, 
Callahan marched his captive back to the hotel and up into his room. As he opened the door, the telephone rang out, and ordering the other to stand with his face to the wall in a corner, and be damn sure not to make a move, the government agent answered the call. As he expected, it was Thurber. "'The code's a cinch,' came the voice over the wire from Washington. "'But the message is infernally important. It's in German, and evidently you picked it up about two sentences from the start.' The part you gave me states that the Transport America, with 12,000 men aboard, will leave Norfolk at daylight Monday. The route the ship will take is distinctly stated, as is the personnel of her convoy. Where'd you get the message? Flashes in the night, answered Callahan. I noticed that an electric sign wasn't behaving regularly so I jotted down its signals and passed them on to you. The next important point is whether the message is complete enough for you to reconstruct the code. Have you got all the letters? Yes, every one of them. Then take down this message, put it into that dot and dash code, and send it to me by special messenger on one of the Navy torpedo boats tonight. It's a matter of life and death to thousands of men. And Callahan dictated three sentences over the wire. Got that? he inquired. Good. Get busy and hurry it down. I've got to have it in the morning. Turn around, he directed the Mexican as he replaced the receiver. Were you to send these messages only on Saturday night? See, si, senor, save that I was told that there might be occasions when I had to do the same thing on Sunday night, too. At nine o'clock? See, si, senor. Callahan smiled. Things were breaking better than he had dared hope. It meant that the U-boat would be watching for the signal the following night. Then, with proper emphasis of the automatic, he gave the Mexican his orders. He was to return to his office with Callahan and go about his business as usual, with the certainty that if he tried any foolishness, the revolver could act more quickly than he. Accompanied by the government agent, he was to come back to the Monticello and spend the night in Callahan's room, remaining there until the next evening when he would, promptly at nine o'clock, and under the direction of an expert in telegraphy, send the message which Callahan would hand him. That's practically all there is to the story. All? I echoed when Quinn paused. What do you mean, all? What was the message Callahan sent? What happened to the Mexican? Who sent the letter and the money from Washington? "'Nothing much happened to the Mexican,' replied my informant with a smile. "'They found that he was telling the truth, "'so they just sent him over the border with instructions "'not to show himself north of the Rio Grande. "'As for the letter, that took the post office, "'the Department of Justice, and the Secret Service "'the better part of three months to trace. "'But they finally located the sender two weeks after she, 
yes, it was a woman, and a darned pretty one at that, had made her getaway. I understand they got her in England and sentenced her to penal servitude for some twenty years or more. In spite of the war, the Anglo-Saxon race hasn't completely overcome its prejudice against the death penalty for women. "'But the message Callahan sent?' I persisted. "'That was short and to the point. As I recall it, it ran something like this. "'Urgent. Route of America changed. She clears at daylight, but takes a course exactly ten miles south of one previously stated. Be there.' "'The U-boat was there, all right.' but so were four hydroplanes and half a dozen destroyers, all carrying the stars and stripes. End of chapter 1